my name is Robert Sram, your host today together with co-host Gabor Kish on Future Now Radio. And our special guest is Michel Bowens from Belgium. At Future Now Radio, we invite active visionaries that are in the process of creating a collaborative world radio platform to explore concepts and understandings around new systems of sustainability and post-scarcity beyond the capitalist framework of today. Future Now Radio is a free station bypassing the mainstream media by offering programs and inspiring original and regenerating perspectives to address world problems and offer positive grassroots and meta solutions. Michel Bowen's passion is peer to peer, which is an abbreviation of person to person or people to people. He's the founder and director of the Peer to Peer Foundation and works in collaboration with a global group of researchers in the exploration of peer production, governance and property. Michel is also a research director of commonstransitions.org, a platform for policy development aimed toward a society of the commons and a founding member of the commons strategies group with Silke Helfrich and David Boyer, organizers of major global conferences on the commons and economics. His last report, Peer-to-Peer -peer Accounting for Planetary Survival, examines which shared accounting systems are needed for production within planetary boundaries. He is currently working on prototyping an MOOC on commons-based economics, and Michel is presently advisor to the Co-Creation Foundation in Vienna and to One Pro. Michel, welcome to the program. It's a great pleasure, and uh, yeah, to see you and uh, my friend Gabor, which I met a few times on the Canary Islands, for example. So it's good to see you guys. Yeah, nice to see you too, and nice to see you, Robert. <laughs> also, cool, Michel, you are living now in Thailand, and. I'm wondering how did you get there yeah. and also you explained that you had a very pretty busy life as a lecturer speaker activist change maker so how do you keep balance in your life well i'm, <laughs> I'm not sure i'm an example for that but anyway so the you know i basically if you come to thailand you will understand that uh, why people stay here it's a society that is that is very friendly that benefits from a tropical climate so you have kind of access to to food and and stuff that is you know very cheap to get so you you cover your basics at a very low cost and you know i i fell in love here and and so i have kids and everything so that's kind of the whole story for me like many digital nomads it's kind of arbitrage right so if i wanted to do what i wanted to do in europe i would need four times as much money as i need here and so I calculated that, you know, with the kind of savings I had, you know, I could work five years and then I would be bankrupt. And then I said, okay, if I go to Thailand, I can probably last 10, 20 years. That turned out not to be the case, but it's still uh, quite interesting. And the way to keep balance when you travel as, as much as I do is to, it's basically to see your career as, you know, like, like an actor, right? So... If you look at the life of an actor, when they make a movie, it's extremely intense. You know, you're working like 14 hours a day, you're exhausted. But when the movie is over, 
you are free for three or four months. Yeah, and then you relax, you go on a trip, you start reading, maybe you look into some uh, new scenarios for the yeah, it's future. Not a, not a typical nine to five. So it's it's not nine to five, but it's like very intense. So it's like bursts, bursts of activity followed by deeper re- relaxation. I have to tell you for that, Thailand is a pretty good place. You know, you have very cheap massage and, and there's a whole health philosophy here about you know the slow life and, and all of that. And, you know, people really take it easy. Even even in Bangkok, you never see anybody running. Like, they'd rather wait one hour for the next bus than actually run. They won't run. So that's extremely relaxing. You know, like especially Chiang Mai is, a, is like a paradise. And, you know, before COVID, we had 25,000 digital nomads here. So that's, you know, a huge amount of people working remotely from here. I have to tell you that COVID has some paradoxical uh, results. So I stopped traveling. Spent a whole year with my family without interruption. Have time to read every morning. I have a discipline to read at least 90 minutes every morning. On the other hand, because of the restrictions, which also exist here, there's a lot less compensation for your work. You know what I mean? Like meeting, going out with friends. So all of that is very subdued and, and that's kind of difficult. So I feel a lot of, I see a lot of my friends are exhausted more than usual during COVID, even though, you know, maybe there shouldn't be a reason for it, but it's because there, there's no entertainment. You know, want to be amongst people. And that's, that's exactly the thing that you can do easily. You know, it's, it's, you have to police yourself. It's not, it's 100% impossible, but you have to be careful. Where do you go? You have to wear a mask. So, so all these things, they kind of work on your, on your mood, I think, and make it a bit, a bit difficult. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you on your journey, Michel, did you ever felt some moments of despair in your life and, and which ones? And how did you overcome these challenges? Well, you know, there's a book that I recommend to everybody. It's called uh, Varieties of Religious Experience from William James. And in that book, William James looks at the lives of spiritual reformers, you know, the founders of new religions, but mostly Reformation. So the founder of the Quakers, the Presbyterians, the Methodists. And he uh, makes a theory that I think fits quite well for my life. So basically, this is a story. You have people who are lucky. They get born in a nice family, in a you know, nice region where there's no war or anything like that. And they have a fairly happy upbringing. And these people will, will have a fairly happy life but they won't necessarily be people who shake up the world because they have no reason to. They find their place, they works well enough for them. So they, okay, then you have other people and this is my type of people. And we kind of fall into the world and we say, what the fuck is this? You know, there's something wrong with the operating system. And so these people initially will be very unhappy. And I was very unhappy as a child, as a, as a teenager and so you're forced to search, right? And that, so that's initially you're searching because you're not happy. But while you're searching, you're learning. So for example, you know, I went into first all the human potential techniques, you know, done primal scream and bioenergy and S seminars and, you know, you name it, I probably did it. And then I went into uh, Eastern spirituality, you know, I was in a Rajneesh commune and, you know, all of that stuff and uh, Tai Chi and Sufi workshops and, 
you know, meditations. Then I went to Western uh, traditions. So I was a Templar, Rosicrucian, did some tarot card reading for a while, alchemy, either alchemy teacher. And so these types of people, at some, at some point in your life, something happens and you say, oh, wow, I'm okay now. You know, it's weird. So suddenly all these things kind of, and so, but usually, okay, that's the nice story, but actually what you do is you, you go through a crisis, right? And in that crisis, you go to the bottom and then you come out of that bottom. And that's what happened to me. So perhaps weird to explain, but when I gave up my militancy, it was kind of like a mourning, right? Because what you think is this world is not good, but I can't change it. And so you accept that you live in a unjust world, but you can't change it. And that creates some kind of like depression, right? It's like you, you, you put away a part of your psychic energy. And so then I had this really big crisis when I was 42. And at that, at that moment, that was crystal clear for me. I need to be engaged to be happy. That was like, you know, it's so you're in the middle of your life and then you have a choice. And I, so the choice is, if I continue like this, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be happy. I can no longer dream about the future because I'm halfway, right? If, if you're young, you can always say later, later, later. Hmm, 42, I'm halfway. No, you. So and that's basically when I felt like, no, no, I can be, you know, I have to go back to my engagement. I won't do it like I did it when I was 20, because I'm more mature. I'm. I don't have the same anger and resentment. And I went through enough self-work to avoid projection because that's the big danger of world changing people is that, you know, they project all the evil outside. And I think now with identity politics, this is very clear scapegoating uh, phenomenon. That's very dangerous, right? Because you think that all, all the evil is from outside. And so other people have to change, but not you. I think if you're more mature, Maybe you know you're not so sure that there are, there are universal solutions, but you you're still engaged to change anyway, right? But knowing that, so I think you need a kind of a tragic, a sense of tragedy to be a, a good world changer, right? You have to. It's like in uh, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, like you know he has to, the Arjuna. Arjuna has to you know shoot people. That's just what he has to do. He's a warrior. He has no choice. But he has to do it without anger, right? Detached from the result of your action. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, you have to detach yourself and, and be enormously aware of projection mechanisms and ego, you know, enhancing, you know, like taking yourself too seriously, right? Yeah. Spiritual journey also starts with a purpose, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's how. Yeah. I think we need grand narratives, right? So yeah, Alexander yeah. Bard also says that. I, I mentioned him because I'm listening a lot to him right now. But this whole idea of postmodernity that you know there are no grand narratives, no way. A human beings first of all needs a personal narrative, and you know that uh, this is a very famous book from Viktor Frankl, Man in Search of Meaning. He says the only people who survived in the concentration camps where the Catholics and the communists, you know, whether they're right or wrong, doesn't matter. The, what matters is that, that their belief allowed them to project themselves in the future. They knew that this wouldn't be forever. 
right? And so there's something after they can look forward to, they can project themselves in the future, yeah. right? That gave them the strength. And this is, we need it. We, you know, a, a grand narrative is not something that, you know, is necessarily completely true, but it's, it has to be sufficiently true and it has to mobilize your energy for a purpose. And I think okay. that's what I'm trying to do. You know, it is a way to mobilize energy from all the people who think they're doing something separate, like food commons, shared mobility. And what I'm telling them is, no, no, you guys are doing the same thing. So you should look at each other, learn from each other and create a broader movement, a broader coalition, because you're actually doing the same thing. If you, you know, you create a layer of abstraction, which is the commons, and then you see that the commons is really what they're trying to do in their different domains. Sure. Yeah, beautiful. Gabor, I think we have a big question for Michelle. Do you want to? Yeah, it's about maybe about the governance and the kind of systems which are seems outdated at the least, uh, and we are holding each other hostage. <laughs> so, how do you feel we most effectively, efficiently, and equitably distribute our abundant global resources so that everyone's needs are met without the consideration of financial or, or other means? So well, I, I, I actually do believe in this global thresholds allocation system. So I believe that this kind of combination of stigmergy markets and planning at a global scale, which maximizes freedom, but within the limits of the survival of the planet, that, that, that is like, you know, the best way to combine freedom and necessity. And then uh, we need to evolve to what I would call multi-stakeholder governance regimes where you know, any institution has to have in its governance all the, the stakeholders and rights holders that it affects. And you know, that's contextual to whatever it is they're doing. So you know, any multinational which is uh, working with wood has to take into account the interest of the forests and the people living in the forest. No, there's no discussion about it. They should be part of the ecosystem. Right, new, you know, <laughs> Constitution, including the nature, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, but there, people are doing this. You know, there's a River Simple, which is an open source hydrogen car, and they have a beautiful governance system, which includes nature as one of the six partners in the system. You know, I'm not sure about the details who they do that, but there, there's ways to do that. There's ways to, to think about this in, in creative ways. You know, if you look at old uh, religions like Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, right? They have these people who are getting a trance and they could make crucial decisions. Like they, they were representative of the spirit world. And so in any, okay, we are rationalists. Because I also learned Buddhism and uh, which, which I found that what Buddha said 3000 years ago, their teachings and their, their most, the first one is, that's my view, you have to try it. You know, you have to experience it. So it's more like a religion. It's an experimental um, right. way of, of doing things. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but they had, they had integrated in their practice, you know, that, that there were these people who could speak, you know, as a kind of transmission of something else. And they, you know, whatever that was, but they took that into account. So, you know, they, whatever that person would say, they would really, really take that into account, just as the Greeks would go to the Oracle of Delphi. Sure. Uh, in order to inform and what we we can now have DAOs, right? DAOs that represents a forest. That so we there's ways to do that. I don't know what the best way is, 
but that's what we have to experiment with. We have to experiment giving well, voice to non-human stakeholders. Yeah, that's what I'm asking because the AI is coming. So how these how the softwares will take this role of governing by a human contribution to be balanced or something, and we outsourcing the decision making or some part of it to a logical system. That's what all sci-fi is about. Yeah, I so that's the whole discussion, and and you know there's this whole kind of technocratic yeah, yeah. Uh, philosophy. Actually, you know technocracy, right? This is a comes from the 1930s. I'm I'm very wary of this tendency right it, because yeah. it's a system that says well we can't trust humans so we project it in the machines yeah, but, but the machines are made by humans who are who are the humans who have designed these machines uh, that's why you get more. facebook you know the the the, the algorithms of facebook are pathological yeah but they're not pathological because they are algorithms they're they're pathological because they are algorithms designed to centralize attention management and sell you advertising. And for that, they need to, to create controversy. They, yeah, they sure. have to keep you enslaved, right? But that's not a problem of the algorithm. It's a problem of the people who wrote the algorithm. And, and also, the, in the other right. way, if AI, we see as a newborn child uh, and it comes into our family or our communities and start to learn things from us. So basically, it can be a mirror of ourselves, our value system, right. and every, all this stuff. So that's why I'm concerned about too, giving the, the voting rights to machines or something, or make decisions. But I think there is a way, a scientific way, or you know how, how we can... Yeah, but you could, you could consider them as tools. So I, I, I very much like these uh, citizen councils that they use in Austria and, and uh -huh. some other countries where... So you, you take 100 citizens that represent the diversity of your country you know there's there's an actual action algorithm to choose the people right then then they put them together for two weeks in some place and they can invite experts right the experts explain from their different points of view what they believe the reality is but in the end it's these, those 100 people that have to discuss together and make a political decision right that's the police that we need that's the big invention, you know, is that we need a democracy with citizens. Mm -hmm. Every citizen has a right to intervene and co-construct the, the, you know, the common world. So I, I don't believe in the expertocracy, technocracy. I, you know, these are tools. And then the, we, we can ask an AI, what do you think about this, right? But then, then, we, we, then we decide and we can overrun the AI. when... 100 uh, scientists of a given area give, uh, have a decision and they, they made a prediction with the computer and it's more than 90% accuracy. So it could help to, uh, you know, yeah. substitute uh, experts in, in an area, but it has to be human and, and conscious from the, from the other way yeah, out. Yeah. But think about what Starbucks is doing with its employees, right? They have this kind of uh, algorithm that decides, you know, when and where you should work, right? But they see people as cogs in the machine. They don't think about, are they married? Do they need to be with their kids? So they make you go there from 3 to 7 a.m. And then again, from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Like you can have a life, but that's not a machine. Yeah. This is the HR department that has programmed the machine that doesn't see their employees as human beings, right? And we should never forget that. It's never the algorithm. Yeah. The algorithm has been designed by humans 
and sure, you know, it has like, especially how you call it machine learning, you, yeah. you, you know, it's a black box, right? But the initial conditions are designed by human beings. Yeah, totally. Guys, we could talk for hours about yeah. these topics and it's really wonderful. But we're coming to the end of the interview just about. So, Michel, are there any other topics you want to share or talk about? Not really. Um, so just to tell people if they're interested. So we have a wiki, wiki.p2pfoundation.net, which has 23,000 articles and is very well organized by domain. So, you know, if you're interested in P2P accounting, we have that. Thermodynamic realities, we have that. Culture, we have it. Art, we have it. You know, so really every domain of human life and how peer-to-peer and commoning is influencing and changing it. We have a documentary basis, and then we have the section introductions, which tell you, you know, the key books to read, the key articles to read, you know, the, the main movements involved. So we kind of map out, at least in words, uh, I would actually like to map it out visually, but I don't have, you know, the, the volunteers to do it yet. But I think that would be the next step is to present the complexity in a nice visual way so that people can, can easily find their way. But it's, you know, this, it's important to, to start getting informed about these things because this is the world we are entering and, and, you know, we, we need to know the basics of the, of the functioning uh, to be, you know, if we're not conscious, we're not free because we don't know how we are determined. So the more we know what, what determines us, the more we can you know, responsibly make choices as opposed to be, you know, just pawns in, in the game. You know, I want to tell you a little story about this because this is uh, something that, that I found shocking. So a friend of mine sent me an article that said 30% of Democrats in the U.S. don't believe the election was fair. And my reaction was, that's not possible. Of course, I know the Republicans don't believe it, but you know, I can't believe so many Democrats don't believe it. So I go to Google with the title of the article that my friend sent me and zero results. There was no, no links. No, no. Then I go to DuckDuckGo and I find 15 results on the topic. Okay, then I found the answer, which was that in November, it was the case that 30% Democrats had doubts, but then in January, you know, it was, was down to 10%. So my friend was right and wrong at the same time. But I just want to say, we are being manipulated. By the both, yeah, for sure. You know, but but both CNN and Fox News, you know, give you filtered realities, and also the tech platforms. They, you know, they don't tell us everything, and they actually. So for me, that was a discovery that they have political censorship, and of course, we know, like with COVID, there's so many things you can say about COVID, and what's the other topic? You know, but the the U.S. elections. I mean, there there are topics that they're very heavily. Uh, manage and so that means that we are making our opinions based on very flawed input so that's that you have to know that (laughs) yeah Yeah. yes it's more subtle now and and i think more dangerous now because it's not obvious that they're doing it you can't see it yeah that's probably the main reason why podcast stations and other platforms are important right so we can voice. Yeah, and, but there's another danger there. And this is something which is happening right now, which is a balkanization of, of knowledge. Um, so which is that all the people that 
feel uncomfortable in these social media because of the control mechanisms are no, you know, getting out, but they're all making their own small little, little world. And it's very hard to know, you know, I didn't know your podcast. So this is a problem, right? If we all start going separate ways, how do we keep a common world as well? Because we also need, we live in the same territory. So that's, those are all the big challenges that, that we face. Yeah. Yeah. I can sense uh, that somewhere in the comments, there is this sort of media platform or aspect that sort of... There's many people yeah. working on it. There's various projects, uh, you know, like Daniel Schmachtenberger, Concilium, Jordan yeah. Hall, Civium. The guy in California is also working on a big project on open intelligence. So yeah, there's dozens of projects of people working on these issues. So, you know, give it another five to 10 years and we'll have new types of knowledge management, knowledge filtering. And of course, that's what I'm doing as well. I'm, I'm a filter myself, right? I do meta curation. That means that all the people that trust me, send me stuff. And, you know, I got like 5,000 tabs open. It's a nightmare, but that's the reality. <laughs> um, you know, I can check maybe 15, 20 a day. That's it. Right. So I'll never catch up. And so I'm a curator of my community, which is itself curating, right? And so as long as people, you know, trust my judgment, they will follow me in, and look at what I present them as things that, you know, I don't want to convince people. I just want them to be aware of what is happening and then offer a few competing perspectives that help them understand it, right? So it's pluralistic curation. But the point of view is peer-to-peer -peer in the comments. So I call it the Perspectopedia. Uh, it's not a neutral point of view because I'm interested in peer-to-peer -peer in the comments and advancing that, but also knowing its bad sides. And I'll give you an example, uh, then maybe you should stop. But you know, dating, right? Now we have peer-to-peer -peer dating, you know, like Tinder, and I'm too old for that, but anyway. But you know what? It creates more hierarchy. So that I, I shared it today. So if you're 19 year old in a university, 15 years ago, the, the girls in university could only interact with you. You know, and maybe they would prefer a 22-year-old over a 19-year-old. Yeah. But now, now they can see everybody around them. And, you know, a guy, a 30-year-old guy who has already a career, he's more attractive. And so, so you see what's happening is the very effect of the peer-to-peer -peer choice is actually leading to more narrow choice. That is also happening with many blockchain communities that, you know, the free exchange is leading to uh, oligarchy. And is it uh, the law of this or? or I think so, yeah. Any competition for scarce resources, at each iteration, there's already more and more inequality. Land or Bitcoins. So what you have to do is you have to design anti-oligarchic protocols. You have to cream off regularly so that it doesn't concentrate too much. You, you cannot avoid the concentration, but what you can do is regularly cream off. You know, that's what, for example, progressive taxation is about, right? You, you, you tax the rich more and that creates, you could do that with music, like Gemendo does with uh, music. It's, so if you choose a song, you get one vote. One, you know, one song is one vote. But once you have a thousand people listening to a song, then you need two votes for the next thousand, then three votes for the next thousand, right? And so what you do is the extra votes, they're distributed 
amongst the lesser known musicians, right? But that's a very good example of an anti-oligarchic program. And we need, we need to think about this. We need to, in the, in the online world, we need to think, how can we have these mechanisms which, so you have a minimum and a maximum, right? And you try to keep it within the minimum and the maximum, right? Like you have a minimum wage so that people don't go hungry and homeless. And you have a maximum. It could be 50 billion. It could be 25 billion. Who cares? But there is a maximum and then you start creaming off. That yeah. creates some, a yeah. more equitable society. Otherwise, you're going to the straight pyramid. Yeah. Sure. Maybe my suggestion is to make another podcast later about this specifically. Yeah. Because, yeah. because yeah. The, these, uh, these entities could you know, grow as big, like as you see in Google and Amazon, that, that anti, I don't know how they call it, but you split into different companies like back in the 90s, the Microsoft. And right, now antitrust, like, antitrust. That was, that's also an anti-oligarchic protocol, which was used yeah, in like yeah. the 1930s. how we can avoid it in the peer-to-peer -peer realms, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think in the case of Facebook, you know, what, what I would like to see is that Facebook has to recognize that its value is co-creative. Right? We have 2 billion people exchanging and that's why they are so rich. Not because they're paying people and exploiting people, but because yeah. they're exploiting our cooperation. And so if you recognize that we are co-creating the value of Facebook, then that means they should share some of the, of the profits with us, but also in terms of power, that you could have a multi-stakeholder structure, yeah. which includes the users. Yeah. You have the workers of Facebook, you have the users of Facebook, you know, you could have, and these would be stakeholders that would also co-manage, change well, the logic of management. And that's where Facebook could start to use smart contracts <laughs> in, in the yeah. community. Yeah. Okay, it's just uh, Yeah. I think we have to verify it, but I believe that Varoufakis, this former Greek minister, he came yeah. Yeah, out with that idea. Great conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Vavoufakis is a commons-informed politician because he also advocates for income out of common resources as a binary as a binary income. You have the market income and you have the commons income. And over time, you know, like land value taxation. And uh, so the common resources would create income that would gradually help us to have a non-market income. I think that's a brilliant idea. Awesome. Michel, uh, one of the last questions. Who would you like to invite to the show as a coming new guest? Hmm. Well, I'll, I think uh, if you haven't done it yet, that, you know, talking with the Rebecca Grace Rashmani, Gabor probably knows her. He's, uh, she's a very smart woman based in Spain who writes white papers for blockchain companies, but is also very progressive and commons oriented. So she has a a more in-depth technical view of what is happening in that sp in that space. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think probably Arthur Brock from Holochain would be a good economic space agency. I think are very bright people. Common Stack, Jeff Emmett, also very, very interesting people. Region Network, Gregor Landua or Will Sals, also very interesting. I mean, that's all in the technical field, right? But Will Ruddick, in terms of like very successful complementary currency in Kenya. Amazing success in, in uh, mobilizing the poorest people in the slums and using a complementary currency, which has increased the local exchange by 600%. Mm. And it's fully transparent, you know, you know blockchain linked. And now uh, the Red Cross and everything are financing because they can see what is happening with their, you know, with their gifts. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Will Ruddick is also very interesting. 
maybe you want to talk with Kuhn Wijnands in Belgium, who is doing Commons Lab in Antwerp. Very dynamic, very interesting what is happening there. Yeah, I think that's enough for now, right? Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. We will certainly check them out. Appreciate it. Uh, well, Michel, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a great conversation. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We talked to Michel Bowens, president of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, researcher on education and publishing services related with peer-to-peer trends in many different fields and research director of commonstransition.org and a founding member of the Common Strategies Group. Thank you, Gabo Kish, for co-hosting the show. And thanks again, Michel. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for time. the stimulating conversation.